Welcome to the All Souls Parish in Berkeley's Sermon Podcast. This week we hear from the Reverend Phil Brochard, who's preaching from the lectionary, which happens to be Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. You can find more sermons or information about All Souls at allsoulsparish.org. Hope to see you around sometime. around the middle of a teaching this past summer on status, rank, and power that I started to feel a twist in my gut. I was, uh, I was part of a training team, and we were teaching leaders from across different congregations about healthy, life-giving practices. And at that moment, I was teaching about power with a colleague. The first part of the teaching was about how we in dominant U.S. culture have understood power for a very long time. Like the power you have when you hold a position in an organization. Or like the power you have when you have a a particular kind of an expertise or when you have information that other people don't have, or when you use some sort of coercion to get other people to do what you want. These are all kinds of power. And for decades in dominant U.S. culture, we have taught that as long as you have a position of authority, for instance, positional power, what at one point was known as legitimate power, as long as you have that position of authority, you should be afforded the, the power that comes with it. But we have a lot of evidence that that doesn't always work that way, say, for people of color and for women. Why? About 15 years ago, two psychologists, Leticia Nieto and Margot Boyer began writing and teaching about a new way to understand power. They perceived that it's like an onion with three layers. There's status, and then rank, and then power. Status is the most visible. It's uh, made up of the everyday observable behaviors. They can be behaviors of dominance and behaviors of compliance, but regardless, they don't change the system that we're all a part of. The middle layer of the onion, the one that lurks beneath the surface but has tremendous effect, is called rank. As in how we are each taught to rank each other. And rank works whether we're aware of it or not. It's like, a, it's like a barcode that we read that tells us how to interact with other people. It tells us how to, to value them. Often overvaluing some people and undervaluing others. Now there are a variety of factors that we perceive as we rank. 
Again, usually this is happening without our considering it. But we look at factors like age or gender, social class, religious tradition, sexual orientation, physical ability, ethnic background. And in each category, we are conditioned by the wider culture to overvalue some social memberships, like, say, Christians or heterosexuals, while also undervaluing others, like children and elders or people of color. It's when I teach this part. This is the part that twists my gut. Because when I offer that I check all nine of these boxes, uh, I confess that I am as socially overvalued as it gets. And it's an uncomfortable truth, and it's one that I find really challenging to reconcile. And my gut also twists because I realize that all the ways that I am overvalued means that someone else is being undervalued. And deep in my soul, I know that this is not how we are meant to live in the reign of God. But that's not all. And this is also why I find Nieto and Boyer's work to be so important. Because they teach that rank does not hold all the cards. In fact, at the very center of their model is power. And power does not belong to any one of us. In fact, according to them, power, true power, is derived from our connection to the divine. And this power is fundamentally related to, found in the very core of our being. It is by nature generative and life-giving. And while it is also uh, invisible because of the distortions of rank and status, by its very definition, this power is accessible to all. And so I had this on my heart this week as I was reading through our passage from Mark's Gospel. And in the, the scenes leading up to our story this morning, Jesus has been creating quite a name for himself. He's been healing people. He's been feeding them by the thousands. But in the story we hear today, he finds himself in foreign territory. After a set of disputes with the religious authorities about who is inside of the bounds of God's mercy and who is not, and remember, he keeps drawing the circle bigger each time he gets into conflict, we find Jesus outside of the Roman province of Palestine in the region of Tyre on the Mediterranean coast. And even though he tries to enter the region incognito, 
someone in the area hears of his arrival and comes seeking his help. And the writer of this gospel is clear to give us this person's rank. Right? You hear it right in the text. It's a woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. Now, for those uh, familiar with the culture that, that are hearing this story, it sets off alarm bells immediately because in that culture that they inhabit, Jesus should not be talking to a woman outside of his household. It is scandalous. And a Gentile, essentially someone outside of the Jewish faith, not acceptable. But to make it painfully clear, we hear that this is also a Syrophoenician. Right? Someone from the ancient kingdom of Phoenicia who are enemies and are now part of the Roman province of Syria. The cultural chasm between Jesus and this Syrophoenician woman is deep and it is wide. But the Syrophoenician woman is not deterred. Because this itinerant rabbi wonder worker might be all that she has left. And so in a moment of desperate courage, she throws herself down at Jesus' feet and begs him to cast a demon from her daughter. And Jesus calls her a dog. Now, here, I think it's important that we look at this text as honestly as we can. Because for hundreds of years, a lot of ink has been spilled about this particular interaction, and much of it has been an attempt to protect Jesus. Listen again to what Jesus says. Let the children be fed first. For it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. The clear implication here is that the children are the children of Israel and that the Gentiles are the dogs. Now, over the years, some have tried to soften this blow by saying that Jesus wanted to prevent this woman from accessing cheap grace, right? You really need to want it. She needed to prove that she wanted it. It doesn't <laughs> match his pattern of healing at all, number one. Number two, if any of us have come across or been a parent desperate for their child's healing, there is no doubt about wanting it. And some, over the years, have tried to hear Jesus using this word dog in a loving way. <laughs> like he's calling her a puppy. And there is no evidence for this at all. But I understand why we do this with this text. I get it. We're left with an uncomfortable realization that the human Jesus of Nazareth in this moment was not able to look past the rank of his day. And rather than see this mother's pain and distress, 
only sees her foreignness and her existence beyond the bounds of God's power and mercy. And that's where this story would have ended if it weren't for the desperate and remarkable faith of this woman. Because instead of leaving ashamed, she persists in trust. And she reminds Jesus of the source of his power, what this power is all about. You see, when Jesus responds to her about the food being for the children, for the word children, he uses a word that means biological children. But when she answers him, she calls him to a truer understanding of their relatedness by using a different word for children, one that refers to the young of all the household, the servants, everyone. It's brilliant and subversive and powerful. She doesn't try to argue rank with him. Instead, she reminds him that the source of his power has a much, much larger family than the culture around them allows. Everyone is fed from this table. And this is where I wonder, is this when Jesus got a twist in his gut? What we know is that there's a flash of recognition and he relents. The text tells us that because of her word, her logos, Jesus acts on her request. And because of the way that she's able to reframe what is happening, once again, we see a pattern emerging in this gospel, and it continues here, that God's mercy and power extend much farther than we often want to allow. This is the kind of power that Nieto and Boyer recognize as true power. Anyone can have access to it when we act from the center and the source of our being. You'll know it when it makes more of all of us and is not constrained by the roles society says we must occupy. You'll know it when love is given without demand. You'll know it when compassion is offered instead of retribution. Now, uh, this may be simple, but it is not always easy. Especially for those of us who, like me, have benefited from years and years of being overvalued. It means that we will have to reveal 
and set aside our reliance on rank. And listen, deeply listen, as we are called once again to the true source of our power. A healing mercy that truly feeds us all.